Well, please be seated. Uh, let's pray together as we come now to God's word. Let's all pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful story in Luke 24, and we thank you for the great opportunity it is for us to gather like this and to hear your word. I ask, Father, that as we come to your word this evening, that you would bless and help me as I preach on these truths, and that you would give us all eyes that are opened to recognize Jesus, and that you would give us hearts that burn as we see him in all the scriptures. In his precious name, we ask these things. Amen. So if you could please keep your Bible open there at the final chapter now of Luke's Gospel, which in chapter 24, and this evening we're looking at verses 13 to 35, and we're coming back to these studies in Luke's Gospel this evening, and we're continuing with Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, the resurrection has already been announced at this point. It was announced by the angels back in verses 5 to 7 as they spoke to the women early that morning at the empty tomb. But there is someone who doesn't appear at all in the first 12 verses of Luke 24. And that person is, of course, Jesus himself. Now, the, the news of his resurrection has been announced. It's gradually spreading, as we shall see. And yet, as far as Luke's account is concerned, the risen Jesus has not actually appeared in person himself yet. And, of course, all of that changes in the story that we come to this evening, this wonderful story of what took place on the Emmaus Road. Luke is actually the only one of the four gospel writers who includes this story. But we're sure glad that he did because it is a, a fantastic story, isn't it? And I'd like us to notice this evening that the way that Luke tells this story is done in such a way as to highlight the theme of reversal. Uh, by what I, what I mean by that is as follows. In the first half of the story, uh, these two disciples in question that we meet on the Emmaus Road uh, are shown to have three problems. Now we'll look at those three problems in detail in due course, but just briefly notice what those three problems are. They have a problem with their eyes, they have a problem with their hopes, and they have a problem with their hearts. And then in the second half of the story, each of those three problems is reversed by the risen Jesus. So let's start by unpacking what those three problems are briefly. Firstly, they have a problem with their eyes. And the problem is, of course, that they are kept from recognizing Jesus. And so Luke tells us that that very day, that is the, the Sunday, that Jesus had risen from the dead. Two of his disciples were making their way uh, from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles away. 
Now, these are not two of the apostles. They are two of the people from the, the wider circle of people who followed Jesus. They were disciples in that wider sense. One of them is called Cleopas. The other one remains unnamed in the story. And the implication is that these people lived in Emmaus. Uh, we can assume that they had been in Jerusalem, uh, perhaps because they were traveling in that crowd with Jesus and had come to Jerusalem with him. Uh, maybe they hadn't been traveling in that crowd with Jesus. Maybe uh, they just happened to be in Jerusalem anyway because of the Passover celebrations. But either way, they'd been in Jerusalem. Uh, they had then remained in Jerusalem on the Saturday uh, because they didn't want to travel uh, on the Sabbath. And so they waited until the Sunday. They got up. They had breakfast. They said their goodbyes to their fellow believers in Jerusalem and uh, they packed their bags and it would appear that at some point on the Sunday afternoon they finally got round to embarking on this journey, maybe two, two and a half hour walk from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. And of course as they walked along there's only one topic of conversation isn't there uh, that morning or that afternoon rather. They had been in Jerusalem as Jesus was crucified there. Maybe they had even been at the crucifixion themselves, we don't know. Maybe they witnessed it taking place. And they loved Jesus, they pinned their hopes on Jesus. And so of course they're talking about the crucifixion and all the events surrounding it. And as well as that, they're also talking about the reports of the resurrection. Whatever time they had set off from Jerusalem that afternoon, uh, they had been in Jerusalem long enough that day in order to catch wind of the story of these resurrection claims. And they're talking about these two things as they walk along. The fact of the crucifixion and the claims of the resurrection. And someone on the road catches up with them and joins in the conversation. Of course, we know who it is. We know it's the risen Jesus. But Cleopas and his friend don't know who it is. Uh, their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And God, in some way, prevents them at this stage from recognizing that this is Jesus himself. This is Jesus alongside them, Jesus speaking with them. And Jesus engages them in conversation. Uh, he says to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, of course, Jesus is fully aware of what they're talking about. But as he asks this question, he does so because, as he often does with a question, he uses it in order to get people to open up about their thoughts, about their beliefs about their feelings and so forth. And that's what Cleopas does. He, he answers Jesus and as he does so, the second problem then emerges. Remember, the first problem is to do with their eyes. They're kept from recognizing Jesus. The second problem is with their hopes. And the problem is that their hopes have died with Jesus. Or so they think. 
And so Cleopas says to Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It is, of course, the biggest news story that there has been in years and years and years. Jesus, this amazing miracle worker, this, this incredible preacher, this would-be Messiah, getting arrested by the Jewish authorities, put on trial, found guilty, and then crucified by the Romans. Of course, it's what everyone is talking about. You couldn't not know about Jesus and his crucifixion. And needless to say, of course, Jesus knows about it, doesn't he, as well. But again, he asks a question. Again, the point of the question is not to give Jesus more information that he doesn't know. The point of the question is that Jesus is getting people to open up, getting people to talk about their thoughts and feelings. And so Jesus says to him, what things? What things are you talking about? And Cleopas, no doubt, feeling more than a little bit exasperated maybe with this apparently ignorant stranger, says to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And you see, what Cleopas emphasizes in his retelling of the events of that weekend is that their hopes have died with Jesus. Do you notice that? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, what exactly does Cleopas mean by this redemption of Israel? The truth is, we don't know for sure what he meant. He could have been thinking mainly in political terms. Uh, he was hoping that Jesus would be the one who would kick the Romans out and establish the kingdom of Israel once again, a bit like in the glory days of David and Solomon. Or is he thinking about action? the forgiveness of sins? Or is he thinking about a, a bit of both, political and spiritual redemption? The truth is we don't know for sure what he meant by that phrase, the one who would redeem Israel. But what we do know is that he thinks that these hopes died with Jesus three days ago. In his mind, this longed-for redemption just doesn't fit with the cross of Jesus. How on earth could Jesus be the promised Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel, when he ended up being crucified? And yet, as well as that, before leaving Jerusalem, as they were packing their bags and saying their goodbyes to their friends and their, follower, their fellow followers of Jesus, uh, this rumor started doing the rounds that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so Cleopas continues, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
And clearly, Cleopas and his friend don't believe in the resurrection at this point. After all, they don't even bother staying in Jerusalem to find out if there's any truth to this rumor. It didn't make them change their plans in the slightest, it would seem. They set off home anyway, dismissing this rumor of resurrection. And they're weighed down with the sadness that their hopes have died with Jesus. And then Jesus exposes their third problem. And the third problem is a problem of their hearts. And Jesus tells them that their hearts are slow to believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. That's what he's getting at, isn't it? In verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so he gives these two people uh, something of a gentle rebuke here, doesn't he? It's as if Jesus is saying to them, well, here you are, all upset because you think that your hopes have died with Jesus. But the main problem here is not with your hopes. The main problem is with your hearts. And if your hearts were quicker to believe what the scriptures say, you'd see that your hopes of redemption through Jesus are actually alive and well. And so do you see how Luke shows us, as he tells us this story, that Cleopas and his friend have got these three problems with their eyes, their hopes, and their hearts. Their eyes are kept from recognizing Jesus. Their hopes died with Jesus, so they think. And their hearts are slow to believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. And then in the rest of the passage, these three problems are each going to be overturned by the risen Jesus. They are reversed one by one. And to start with, Jesus addresses the problem of their hearts. That's the first one that Jesus aims at, isn't it? He aims at the heart, first of all. Those hearts that were slow to believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. And so notice this, their hearts burned as they see Christ in all the scriptures. Their hearts burned as they see Christ in all the scriptures. So Jesus says to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And you see, the point that Jesus is making is this. Cleopas and his friend were mistaken in thinking that the Messiah they were waiting for to redeem Israel would enter into his glory without having to suffer along the way. They thought the Messiah would enter into his glory without having to suffer along the way. That was their mistake. Uh, the Messiah would just defeat the Romans. He'd establish God's kingdom. Everything would be happy ever after. All glory. No suffering. And what they failed to understand was that the scriptures teach that yes, the, the Messiah would enter into his glory. But he would do so via great suffering. 
glory through suffering. That is the, the pattern that the, the prophets show us concerning the promised Messiah. First he would suffer, then he would enter glory. Now the, the Apostle Peter in First Peter chapter 1, he sums up this pattern extremely well for us when he writes these words. He, he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit, in, uh, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's the kind of Messiah to look for, Jesus says to Cleopas and his friend. Look for a Messiah who suffered first and then entered his glory. The cross first and then the crown. Why do you think that the crucifixion means that Jesus can't be your redeemer? Of course he can. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. And then Jesus preached a sermon to Cleopas and his friend. Now Luke doesn't include the sermon. But he he sums it up with these words. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A few weeks ago I was uh, having breakfast one morning with the children and uh, there was a, a Bible sitting on the, the breakfast table in front of us and uh, as we were munching our way through our cereal, uh, Elliot uh, reached over and picked up this Bible and he uh, turned to a random page, uh, they're all random to him because he can't read, uh, he turned to a random page and he pointed to it and he, he said, Jesus. And I said, that's right, Elliot, you've got it right. Um, there's Jesus. And he then turned to another random page and the same again, Jesus. And then to another random page and, and the same again, Jesus. And you see, in his little two-year-old mind, he's understood, actually, the, the sermon that Jesus preached on the Emmaus Road that day. And the point of which is that all of the scriptures, pick any page you like, all the scriptures speak of Jesus, his sufferings, and his glory. And when you get this into your heart and into your head, it changes the way you read the Bible, doesn't it? Let me ask you, what do you look for when you read the Bible? Or when you listen to the Bible? Do you simply look for moral lessons about how I can live a better life? How I can live a good, godly life? So you, you maybe think, well, I need to be like David, who faced up to his fears when he took on Goliath. Or I, I need to be more like Daniel. Uh, he was so faithful that even the lions couldn't touch him. And so you come to the Bible and, and you're thinking, this is really a, a lesson about me and, and my life. I'm looking for the moral of the story. How do I live 
my life? How can I emulate the good examples that I find in these pages? Now, of course, there's nothing particularly wrong with that approach to the Bible per se. I'm not saying that's completely wrong. But I am saying that it misses a dimension of reading and interpreting the scriptures, which we're impoverished if we miss out upon. And that is the approach that Jesus takes here to all the scriptures. And that is that every page of it is ultimately about him. It points us to him and both to his sufferings and to his glory. And if you approach the scriptures that way, that every time you open the Bible, wherever you open it, whether it's Old Testament or New, you come to it expectantly thinking, well, how does this page speak of him? How does it show me Christ? How does it show me his sufferings? How does it show me his glory? Because all the scriptures speak of him. He's the the one promised in the Garden of Eden who would suffer by having his heel bruised and yet he would be glorified in that he would crush the head of the serpent. He's the true ark, the one who passed through an outpouring of God's judgment so that those in him would be saved. He's the offspring of Abraham. Who, through whom God's blessing would reach all of the nations. He's the true and the better Isaac, who ascended the hill and then really was offered up as a sacrifice in obedience to his father. He's the, the true and better Joseph, the one who was betrayed by those closest to him and who, though himself was innocent, was wrongly convicted remained faithful even throughout the punishment and then ascended to the right hand of the throne from where he provides for those who are his undeserving brothers. He's the the true and better Moses, the one who mediates a new covenant, the one who stands in the gap interceding for his people. He's the, the true and better brazen serpent, the one who was lifted up on a pole so that those who look to him can live. He's the true manna, the true bread from heaven who gives life to those who receive him. He's the the true and better David who to the human eye appeared far too weak to save us and yet single-handedly defeated our worst enemy so that all of his people can share in his victory now. He's the, the true and better Esther who didn't just say if I perish I perish, but when I perish, I will perish so that my people will be saved. He's the the true and better Job, the truly righteous and innocent one who suffered greatly and then when he came out of the other side of that suffering, uh, appeared before God in order to intercede for his foolish friends so that they could be forgiven. He's the suffering servant, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He's the true and better Jonah, who was cast into a grave and yet came out three days later. He's the true Adam, tested in a garden, 
and yet came through sinless so that all of those he represents could have access to the tree of life. He's the true Israel who went into the wilderness and withstood every temptation there. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. And you see, don't you, all of the Bible, all of the Bible, every page of it is about Jesus. That's what Jesus was unfolding to these people on the Emmaus Road that day, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And later on that day, as Cleopas and his friend reflected on what they'd heard on the Emmaus Road in that wonderful sermon, uh, they said, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Those hearts which had been slow to believe what the scriptures say about Jesus burned as they saw Christ in all of the scriptures. And may our hearts do the same as we see what all of the scriptures show us concerning Jesus, both his suffering and his glory. So Jesus has dealt with a problem of their hearts and now he's going to deal with the problem of their eyes. So notice this, their eyes are opened to recognize the risen Jesus. We're at verse 28. This journey to Emmaus draws to an end and with it this sermon that Jesus was preaching and Cleopas and his friend turn off the road to head home but Jesus acted as if he's going to go further it's getting late now and so Cleopas and his friend invite Jesus to stay at their house rather than continue his journey into the darkness and so Jesus went in to stay with them when it got to dinner time these three friends gathered around the table ready to eat and it's notable that they asked their guest to give thanks and break the bread to be served Normally, of course, that would be the host who would do that. But they ask if Jesus will do this. I assume that the reason is that they've just heard this incredible sermon from the whole of the Old Testament from Jesus. And so they recognize that he is a great teacher. And as a mark of honor and respect, they ask him to be the one who gives thanks and breaks the bread for it to be served. And as he does so, it is at that very moment that their eyes are opened and they recognize him. Their eyes are open to recognize the risen Jesus. And what was it that made them recognize him at this point? Was it maybe something about the way that he did this, which reminded them of Jesus giving thanks and breaking the bread when he fed the 5,000, for instance? It could be that, but be that as it may, I think that the emphasis here really is upon the divine gift of eyes that recognize that Jesus is risen. Just as God had kept them from recognizing Jesus initially, God now opens their eyes to see Jesus and to see that he is truly risen. And I take it that that is a picture of the fact that it is only when God gives us that spiritual sight that a person can come to recognize Jesus and see that he is Lord and Christ And he is indeed risen from the dead. It takes a miracle 
for a spiritually blind person to have their eyes opened to see that Jesus really is risen from the dead. And at that point, Jesus vanished from their sight because he's done what he needed to do for these two friends. Their hearts are burning now as they see Jesus in all of the scriptures. And their eyes are opened to recognize the risen Jesus. And as a result of those two things, the third problem, the problem of their dashed hopes, has already been dealt with as a result. Because they thought that their hopes had died with Jesus. But they now see that their hopes are made certain, thanks to the resurrection of Jesus. And so what a transformation there is. They're, they're now filled with, with hope and, and with joy. Uh, Luke tells us that Cleopas and his friend rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. Remember, that's a, a seven-mile journey, and they've already done it once that day. And it's getting late, it's getting into the evening, but they're so filled with joy at seeing this risen Jesus that they rush back to Jerusalem again and they find the disciples gathered together. And they're about to tell the disciples what has happened. But before they can get a word in edgeways, the disciples say to them, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then when they get the chance, they told the disciples what had happened to them on the Emmaus Road. This incredible conversation with Jesus. This incredible sermon for, which Jesus took the whole of the Old Testament as his text to preach from. And how then they recognized Jesus as he broke the bread over supper. And they're filled with joy as a result of this because all their hopes are now made certain thanks to the resurrection of Jesus. There's no question about it anymore. We had hoped that he might be the one to redeem Israel. That hope is certain now. He is the one to redeem Israel and to in, indeed to redeem all of his people. Peter writes these words. We've heard them earlier on in our service. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It makes all the difference, doesn't it, that Jesus is risen from the dead. It fills us with a certain hope, a hope that will never die. William Hendrickson sums up these thoughts so well. He says, a new beginning, light in the darkness, life conquering death. The Lord is risen indeed. Here, all changes. He lives. Hence, life is worth living. Hence, all things work together for good to them that love God. Hence, we too shall live. Hence, the curse is going to be removed from the universe. And we expect a new heaven and a new earth. All the darkness is dispelled. Hope lives again. He is risen. And hope is revived. Give thanks to God that our hope is made certain thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give to you our praise and our thanksgiving for these wonderful truths that are set before us in this story of Luke 24. We thank you for the certain hope that is ours in Christ 
a hope that is certain because of his resurrection. We praise you that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And our Father, we pray that as we study the scriptures, that we would not be slow of heart, but that you would cause our hearts to burn as we see Christ in all the scriptures, every page speaking of him. The scriptures showing us his sufferings which have been completed and as well as that his glory which is forevermore. And we pray as well for those who have not yet recognized Jesus, not yet seen that he is risen. And just as you opened the eyes of Cleopas and his friend, we ask that you would open the eyes of those around us to see Jesus for who he is and to be convinced that he is alive today. And so our Father, we pray for opened eyes and we pray for burning hearts. And in Jesus' glorious name, we pray these things. Amen.